The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. All right. Sounding good. How are we good this week? Sounding, sounding pretty good. Nice. A little bit of an echo there. Now I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Some improvements to the studio since uh, since I was last here. Uh, there's more, uh, you know, ribbed thingies. What do you call those? Yeah, it's like there's sound sound foam, basically. Sound. sound I can't hear you very well on my really? mic. No, I think it's probably your headset. I'm okay. coming in just fine. Okay, you sure are. You're looking great, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. Clean up nicely. <laughs> Uh, it's that time. We're back on the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. I'm your host, Jay, here in the Brewing Network studios in downtown Concord, which is pretty chilly tonight. It's cold in California, finally. Yeah, so it's cold everywhere, including on your side of the tunnel there at the uh, mm-hmm. Rare Barrel. Oh, it's really cold. So what's going on? Like, how does that affect the uh, the barrel uh, warehouse? You know, it does. It's uh, We're lucky that in Berkeley, uh, you know, today is an especially cold day. But, uh, you know, usually throughout the year we're hovering around... High 50s to mid 60s the whole time, which is kind of just fine for slow, long-term barrel aging. We get this nice fog rolling in off the bay there, and it kind of insulates us from a lot of heat. If you go to Oakland or uh, El Cerrito, kind of Richmond area, which is all right next to Berkeley, um, you can see a 10, 15-degree heat difference in the summer. But yeah, right now, just especially today, everything's just really cold. So... um yeah, yeast and bacteria slow down. So we kind of try to examine the things that, uh, and we were just talking about this uh, this week, about fruit re-fermentations or, you know, evaluating how stable is a beer, meaning how steady is the gravity dropping or not dropping, and is it ready to be packaged? You kind of need to look at that through the lens of winter a little differently because I think you can get some, what I will just term as like a false positive. So it's like... I'm waiting to see this beer stop fermenting in order to package it. And so you're going to see that and then put it into a package and realize in the summertime maybe it's going to re-ferment even more. It wasn't done. It was just cold. Yeah, exactly. So we troubleshoot that. That probably doesn't make the top 10 list of troubleshooting things that we do. Is it just because it rarely gets cold enough to have that effect in Berkeley? Yeah, there's well... Rarely gets uh, cold enough for the beer. I think if you ask the employees, right. they, okay, right. <laughs> they'd say something else. But uh, today in particular is just uh, kind of an anomaly. But uh, for long-term barrel aging, it's not nearly too cold to kind of continue that process. It doesn't, like, slow down completely. You know, uh, the Belgian Lambic producers talk about how many summers a beer has gone through in aging rather than referring to it in years. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is the second summer it's going through. Because it's so cold there in the late fall to early spring that there's not a lot of movement there, but that's also when they do their brewing season. So it works out kind of conveniently for that. But, yeah, certainly something we got to keep an eye on. You don't change up what you're brewing based on the season, do you? No, although uh, Stefan, our uh, inventory coordinator, mentioned to, to us this week that he, lo- he looked back at last year and uh, didn't see us do actually a lot of fruit refermentations. I don't remember making that deliberate decision at the time, but it's, it was certainly convenient that we didn't do that as much. I think we were doing a lot of barrel character beer, tequilas, uh, beer, uh, Bordeaux barrel beer. So that was uh, conveniently planned. And if we maybe thought a little farther ahead, we could do that. But we also want fruit beers year-round. And if it just means waiting an extra month uh, in barrel or in bottle, then that's what we're willing to do. So the beer takes so long anyway, it's kind of like... Let's just keep chugging along, and we, we always have new experiments we want to try out and uh, share with people. So that's something we don't take into too much consideration, except just an increased level of patience, I would say. So, like, forget costs and everything. Just ideally, if you could temp control the warehouse, would you? Sure. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think so. We could, we could have a tighter range of temperatures. You know, I think some winemakers and maybe even some brewers would say they like some fluctuation over the year. I think the winemakers talk about, 
even the ones who can temp control to the same, you know, degree Fahrenheit year round, they will go up and down a little bit over the course of, you know, the day, the daily change in temperature or the yearly change. I think they think that that the contraction and expansion of the oak barrel kind of influence, like gets more wine into it. And then that wine kind of comes out with the temperature change. So there's, there could be something to that. Other people are just, you know, set on one thing. If And uh, I always don't like referencing stuff that's been on the show because it can be proven wrong if I'm actually wrong about it. But <laughs> it's on record. I believe uh, Vinny at Russian River keeps his uh, barrels at a stable temperature, like mm. 68 degrees or 65 degrees, something like that, uh, year-round. So there's certainly a few ways to go about it. But when we were looking for locations for the rare barrel, we were we definitely had that at top of mind. And really anywhere else in the Bay Area would have been, it almost would have been preclusive to go there without uh, an HVAC system uh, in place, either if the warehouse already had it or we'd have to install it. We kind of factored that into the budget. And we looked at a lot of places that we maybe could have started the brewery with that equipment either in place or we'd have to install it. But after looking at the Berkeley yearly temperatures and then we actually got the chance to put a temperature probe inside the space before moving in. Um, and that was during uh, kind of the, the hotter parts of summer. So we were comfortable where that temperature never really got above 80 ever during that stretch, which is kind of a key to limiting the production of acetic acid. So I would say if you're going to go one direction or the other, I would kind of err on the side of staying cooler because it's just going to take you longer. But if you're producing a lot more acetic acid because it's just hot all the time, then it creates a blending issue and perhaps maybe will foster the growth of acetobacter, which you don't want spreading in your brewery. So lots of challenges there. Yeah, and I, I didn't you know, mean the question to sound silly because oh, there's so much focus on control mm-hmm. of fermentation temperature and, you know, in, in home brewing and all, all brewing, right? But I did think maybe there was something to some kind of fluctuation being desirable in the kind of beer production you do. For sure, yeah. And, you know, you bring up control, and I think you've heard from a brewer like myself or some of the other brewers we had on this show or the other great BN shows, Scott, which are <laughs> Brew Strong, Dr. Homebrew, Brewing with Style, and The Session. Mm-hmm. And check. check. <laughs> <laughs> um, Seamless. You know, what uh, brewers are controlling all along the way, and then you get to a point where it's like, oh, it's what do you do about this? And the brewer's just like, yeah, we kind of just have to live with right, that. Right, totally, know? yeah. <laughs> it's, we're, none of us are brewing, uh, you know, under a flow hood, and, you know, everything is exact and totally controlled. So we try and control as much as possible. And, you know, temperature is something that we've seen through other barrel aging beverage producers uh, that you can accept some some fluctuation, but... It's problematic at the extremes. So I'd say below 55 degrees Fahrenheit consistently or above 80 consistently, I think, are kind of okay. trouble spots. So it's a pretty big range. So you also, like, my first thought, I mean, not to harp too much on, on temperature, but, like, my first thought when you mentioned Vinny, uh, a Russian River, keeping his barrel house at a consistent temperature was that the barrels on the bottom racks have mm-hmm. to be a good five, six, seven degrees different than the barrels on the top, yeah. right? Even in a temperature control environment, and I, maybe this is something you don't because you don't do that. But like, I don't know. Does he? Is that just something he's like? Well, yeah, there's just a difference, and it's okay. Or I won't speak for Vinny because I haven't heard him comment on that. But I think most people accept that difference in general. For us, we move the barrels around quite a bit, so I think a lot of that is negated by some of that movement, but. I've heard that the Lost Abbey actually does track that. They track what barrels are in are at what level uh, of their brewery. So yeah, it's one more thing to track, and I don't think that's the worst idea. We have, um, you know, one of those uh, infrared temperature laser gun mm-hmm. things. So we'll point it at the bottom barrel, point it at the top one, three or four degrees different. So not nothing, but also not that much when you consider the ups and downs of the whole year and kind of just the daily ups and downs Good. cool so that's our show uh, <laughs> <laughs> no uh it's great that we started that way because we're doing a question and answer show indeed we might have some beer to drink as well if you guys want to get involved in all this fun you can contact us 888-401-BEER is the phone number here uh, you can join us in the chat give us feedback 
uh, in between shows, scott at thebrewingnetwork.com or email myself, jay at thebrewingnetwork.com. And that's how we've gotten a lot of the questions for tonight's show. So we appreciate that or a majority, a vast majority of them. So that's the way to go. Uh, you can watch us. We are on the webcam, thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV. Or uh, listen to us live another way, the Brewing Network app. Just search BN Mobile. I did not prepare Scott for this, but maybe he is prepared. You can subscribe and leave feedback on iTunes. Let's yeah. check in on that. The review of the week. See if we have, or month, or, or just what, the uh, review yeah. of every two shows that we Yeah, but you know, we in. forgot to do it on the second episode on the last I show. I don't repeat these things yeah. every show, which is... You should. Should I? Yes. There's so much I They're repeat. all individual, basic. That's the idea, right? Is each, indiv- each episode is its own individual thing. So, I know. I know it feels like a lot of repetition, but don't worry. That's, that's how radio and podcasting works. That's how radio and podcasting works. That is how it works. <laughs> okay. Uh, the review of the week is from Ray T., who says, that's a five-star review, as they all are. The title is Poetry. The review is... The rest of this review will be in limerick form. There once was a show called The Session. So bad it triggers aggression. Don't waste your time. Please trust this rhyme. Now pardon my drink I must freshen. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. That's good stuff. Yeah. Not not much of a poet, but I can appreciate that. (laughs) I think he's he's good. Review of the week brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Who else? (laughs) They're doing their uh, member drive 2016. Anyone that joins the AHA through the Brewing Network, join the AHA link. Now through Christmas Eve, using the promo code BNARMY or BANARMY, will receive two books mailed to their home address. The books will be Wood and Beer, a Brewer's Guide by Peter Buchart and Dick Cantwell. I own that book. I'm actually in that book. Not very much, but <laughs> or not just my name is mentioned at one point. Um, so it's obviously it's a great book. Uh, and then uh, a book that I used a lot when I was starting out in brewing, which is uh, Designing Great Beers, The Ultimate Guide to Brewing Classic Beer Styles by Ray Daniels. Terrific book for all you brewers out there. And really just one of those books that you see in uh, brewers libraries. And you've got a lot of books. Like if you look at mine, then it's... You know, water, not water, or brewing microbiology and, you know, chemical analysis and brewing standards, blah, blah, blah. Those still look brand new. I've had them for four years. But the Designing Great Beer books in a lot of brewers' libraries is the one with a bunch of post-its in, and there's notes all over it, and it looks pretty beat up. And that's because people are really using that book to uh, to make a lot of the great beers that are out there. But don't forget, you can also get some great benefits like the Zymergy magazine or online eZymergy member discounts at bars, breweries, and homebrew shops. And Scott, my favorite, it's an app that the AHA came out with to find member deals and get recipes on. Brew Guru. Brew Guru. Lots of cool stuff. So join the AHA Homebrewers Association.org, right? That's not That's right. That's not on here, but yes. I think I remember that. Let's see. I wonder if uh, there you have uh, AHA.org. Is that part two? Will that take you there? I think that used to be, maybe. Really? AHA.org. Uh, no, that's the American Hospital Association. Oh. That's no good. So go to homebrewersassociation.org. They beat us to it. Yeah, they Can't did. believe it. I wonder if we can buy it. Homebrewing, you know, been around since yeah. for 40 years. Yeah. Hospitals, who, who needs more them? than 40 years? It's, question mark? I don't know. All right, Scott. I think uh, this is a question and answer show, so let's get to some questions. Brought to us by SourBeerBlog.com. It's all along with all of Dr. Lambic's adventures, including the newest article on the Sour Beer Brew Day with Dr. Lambic's own sour beer recipes and a lot of great information on an area of sour beer that's too often underlooked, which is just the brew day. You know, that we talk a lot about aging, blending, ingredients, you know, a lot of different microbes and how they act, but those, you know, eight hours you spend on a Sunday, that's going to be really impactful for the rest of your beer. So uh, he goes through it all in typical Dr. Lambic depth. So visit sourbeerblog.com. I did, by the way, take your enthusiastic plugging of uh, Dr. Lambic's post about you mm-hmm. and the oh. Rare Barrel. Um, I listened to you and your plug, and I went and I read it, and it was great. Great. Uh, well written by Dr. Lambic, as always. And there's a, a tip, by the way, for all of you beer authors out there. If you want Jay to enthusiastically plug <laughs> you, uh, like, uh, is it the wooden beer that you were mentioned in? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, then uh, all you have to do is in- include Jay and the Rare Barrel in your 
uh, writings, and uh, you'll get plugged on this show for sure. I guess my ego is getting a little out of control. <laughs> yeah, so Dr. Lambic brings you this question from Mark Graves. We're going to get in the Wayback Machine. Mark writes in, back in January of 2015 with this question, and it is sort of businessy, personally related. He says, uh, Jay, when starting a, an all-wild sour brewery, did you face any skepticism, like from friends or coworkers or the bank? Describe the skepticism you faced. Sure, yeah. There was skepticism, but I have to say not as much as I thought there would be. Or how about this? Not as much as I thought there would be to my face. How about that? Because, you know, people are going to be supportive of you, family and friends. But it's, you know, it's a weird idea. It's a very narrow niche. Uh, I've been surprised at how many people have joined us in this space. I mean, I'm hearing about new uh, either all-sour or sour very heavily sour emphasize uh, new breweries starting up all the time. And I hear from a lot of them through, you know, the Brewing Network uh, email and Facebook and stuff like that, which is great because those are the type of people we like to talk to on the show. So I'm not going to be hurting for guests in the next few years, yeah. I don't think. Making your own. At the same time, yeah, there was, you know, a lot of skepticism that an all-sour project would succeed. And to be honest, I mean, the verdict's still out. We're still a very young brewery. And... um you know, we've established ourselves a little bit, but there's a long way to go on a lot of fronts in the both the business and the beer. But, you know, I'd say the one or one of the advantages we had uh, was the marketplace that we started in, local market. And we mentioned this, I believe, on our episode of the session when we came on uh, to that mediocre program, uh, which was great because we were on it. Oh, sorry. I'm supposed to say it's great because we were on it, right? Right. Yeah. No, what you don't want to. Yeah. That episode was great. What you don't. Oh, that, so you can say you can say I love the session or the session sucks ass. But if you're like, huh, what? What show? That's, That's the worst. Oh, yeah. The average. That's oh, yeah, yeah. no good. That, that gets forgotten, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the local market and how, you know, we were kind of riding on the coattails of Russian River, how they've done such a great job. And they're really a world renowned sour beer producer. And they had been for over 10 years before we got into the game. So people who were in Berkeley, San Francisco, Oakland, who were used to when they wanted, you know, that fix driving an hour, hour and a half to Santa Rosa. And they were like, oh, you guys are starting in Berkeley. Great. There's going to be more local sour beer. Now it's, you know, exploded from a, a lot of different sources. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was an advantage for us. But, you know, we talked to uh, Brandon Jones from Yazoo Brewing on the last show, and I encourage you guys to go check that out. But he talked about going at Tennessee's largest brewery, starting their program from nothing, and kind of the challenges that go with that. But I think it's spreading quite a bit in a lot of the larger metropolitan areas, it just so happens that our backyard is one of the two to three, I would say, sour hubs of the United States. You know, I think Denver and greater Colorado is one. Um, you could throw in probably five others that are in the mix uh, to kind of be around that area. But I think the Bay Area is up there and stands amongst the best places to enjoy sour beer. So that helped us out quite a bit. Have you been up to Maine, to Allagash's Neck of the Woods? No. No, I'm hoping to go really soon, though. I wonder how it is up there if this is a little uh, silly to discuss because neither of us mm -hmm. have been there. But, like, if that is maybe not a hub but has a special appreciation for sort of sour barrel-aged stuff because of Allagash's presence and... I would guess that kind of like you, you're sort of creating your own market. Like you're turning people onto the style every day. You're creating new customers every day. Yeah, I think so. But also, you know, Jason and Rob were on the, they were on the show uh, a little while ago with uh, Jean Benoit and Vinny talking about their friendship, uh, Lambic Blend. And, you know, they talked about what a great city Portland, Maine is, Portland, Maine is, and, uh, I've heard that from a lot of people, just really great restaurants and bars, just a beautiful place to visit to. So, uh, and I think that's kind of a different scene as well. You know, the Bay, every, every scene has a different feel where it has, you know, there's a lot of breweries that you can visit in one day, or is it like the breweries are kind of spread out, maybe more like a San Diego and maybe there's like more of a, a beer bar scene or, you know, is there a couple really great breweries that have a lot of different styles? And then there's also great outdoors or great restaurants. And I think that really influences 
what the best places to do beer travel are. You know, Fort Collins mm-hmm. is going to be way better now with the new hop grenade. Damn right. That really put them over the edge there. So uh, See, I know. Yeah. I, wanna, I want you to plug my spot, so I do a lot of talking about you. Mm-hmm. See how it works? Yeah, now you like me. Uh-huh. That's yeah. right. There was a little touch and go there for a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, people were definitely skeptical from that kind of business personal side. I bet. Mm-hmm. Well, and, like, I mean, Portland... I mean, in Portland, Maine, you know, it might have been sort of primed, like it had that demographic that was primed to like that when when introduced, yep. and then Allagash did the introducing. Yeah, and there's a lot of, like, craft producers in the Bay Area, so, you know, whatever you care a lot about, like coffee or food or kombucha or whatever it might be, cider, you know, all those people, they kind of all know about each other, too. So it just creates this big culture of craft across many different industries. So I think that's that's a very nurturing environment in the San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, and then greater Bay Area. Totally. Thank you for the email, Mark. Let's do one more question for the break. Sure. I can't remember. Did we tackle uh, this pitching uh, Greek yogurt as a method of souring? Did we talk about that? We have talked about it. We have. But it's... You can ask. Okay, yeah. The Let's revisit it. This is from John Agee. Uh, sorry if I'm butchering that, John. He says, hi, Sour Hour. I've uh, decided to try my hand at a kettle-soured Berliner Weiss after listening to your podcast. And, again, this is from a year ago, so John probably has long since done this already. He said, I would like to try the uh, Greek yogurt method of souring. So for those that may be contemplating something like this, John says, so far from what I've read, most people make a starter, then pitch. Currently, I'm not able to keep the starter at the high temps needed to effectively grow the yeast. Uh, a homebrew shop I was at suggested that I pitch four to six ounces of Greek yogurt directly into five gallons of wort, though I can't find anywhere else that backs up that amount. Any help on the direct pitch would be appreciated. Yeah, I caveat, I've not made a kettle sour. Actually, you know, I don't know if I've ever made a kettle sour beer, to be honest, across the board. So, <laughs> But I sure talk about it enough to have learned a lot of the techniques, and totally. I find it interesting. I'm actually surprised that you never, even in, even in sort of your experimental f- phase, weren't seeing like, man, how good can I really get this to be, or can I mimic a long-term effect, which I'm sure a lot of people are doing, but I'm, I'm surprised you never did that. I mean, the other thing is we don't have a brew house, and that's a main piece of equipment for kettle souring. I just mean that in your days as a home brewer. Yeah, which were kind of short-lived. short-lived. You know, I, yeah. I think I might have mentioned either on this show or the other that uh, I'd made... Two homebrew batches, and the third batch I brewed was a 15 BBL batch on the brewery system when I did my first like kind of volunteer brew day when I was just starting out. So, and then then I got back to doing a lot more homebrewing. But uh, but the kettle sour thing with uh, yogurt, I went to the Crappers Conference kettle sour talk where let's see, it was uh, the Commons, Breakside, and Gigantic. Forgive me if I'm getting that wrong, but I believe it was. Ben Love from Gigantic, I believe he was using Greek yogurt either for one batch or maybe multiple batches, and they were doing direct pitch. Um, and they took, you know, the the big thing of Greek yogurt is like the 48-ounce tub, and it was X amount of those tubs. And I also seem to recall that you can find on the Internet that PDF from that Craft Brewers Conference talk, which is Craft Brewers Conference, Kettle Sours, Gigantic, Breakside, the commons and uh i believe also uh sean from the commons mentioned his uh yogurt method on that show but i've heard of people doing direct pitch method so you can do it i think if you can measure ph uh that's a big help if you can prevent oxygen from getting in that's a big help yeah yep that's scott, it. scott has uh put it up on our screen and we found it there it is yeah uh, it's yeah i just searched craft brewers conference kettle souring and it came right up. Yeah, there you go. So I would, uh, I would check that out. There's a lot of good info on that. And uh, also just listen to our shows with some of the brewers have done uh, kettle souring. And uh, Milk the Funk, always a great place to look for more kettle souring information. Okay, uh, time for a break. Maybe I'll finish my coffee. And then we'll get right back to answering the listener question backlog. Does that sound good, Scott? Yes, sir. All right. We will be right back on the Sour Hour. With over 20 years of experience making world-class craft beer and more than 100 gold medals in international competitions, Moylan's Brewing Company is not just a pretty face in craft beer. Just ask Brendan Moylan. What do we got here? The beer of the hour. Moylan's, gotta love that big M. It's like a sign of awesomeness. 
It's got an extra kick to it. Let's pour this bad boy. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, Moylan's. The end of the night when the kids are finally in bed, the wife's in bed, <laughs> nobody's bothering your ass anymore. That's Moylan's time. Moylan's is for you. Yeah! It's to help you out. Yeah. It helps me out. What? Well, because it's freaking awesome. Northern California brewed. It's brewed with love. With love? Oh, yeah. Tremendous. And it's always best where? Moylan's. you got to try it on tap at Moylan's in Novato. They're freaking awesome. Not only because I own the brewery, because I love the beer. Cheers. Boom. Kilt Lifter Scotch Ale takes big beers to a whole new level with rich malt balanced perfectly with delicate hops and now comes in four-pack tall boy cans so you can take the party on the go. Or come to the brewery, take a tour, and try any of Moylan's fresh creations right from the source. Check them out at Moylan's.com. This is Pete from the Garage Project, Wellington, New Zealand, and you're listening to the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. All right. We're back on the Sour Hour. It's the holiday season, Scott. You know that? Merry Christmas, brother. You've heard about this? Happy Hanukkah. (laughs) You know what's the bad thing about the holidays? Or... The only worse thing about the holidays than giving out bad beer is having those bottles be as naked as drunk Uncle Frank gets after too much eggnog. You know about that. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got that uncle. You have you have a Frank? I do. I do have a Frank. You and, got a Frank? And uh, that same Frank has gifted me plain brown bottles. What the hell is really? that? Yeah. yeah label your freaking beer, man. And he's got to do it with Grog Tag. Great sponsor of the Brewing Network. Uh, with them, you never have to worry about bottle nudity at the table because <laughs> they have you covered double meaning. <laughs> Fully customizable, reusable labels ready to peel and stick on just about any surface. And they don't stop there. Grog Tech also offers an assortment of products you can customize for your home bar. With custom coasters, metal signs, and tap handles, Grog Tag will make sure your entire family wants to try your beer this year. The easiest wrapping you'll do this holiday is with a set of grog tags, presumably for yourself. Use code DEC16, like December of 16, DEC16, and take 10% off your next order at grogtag.com. They've uh, been a uh, longtime sponsor of the Brain Network, Grog Tag. I'm sure lots of you guys have used them. I, Jay, you've seen them. I've seen them. Yep. They look awesome. Mm-hmm. They have tons of accessories to make uh, your beer look professional. I mean, honestly, you guys... Take this really seriously. You know, most of the beer we get from you guys is professional beer, basically. Yeah. So why not have it look the part? We get a lot of nice uh, labels, and it makes a difference. You know, Big you time. Uh, you eat and drink with your eyes sometimes, and that's definitely part of it. So help out uh, us and help out our sponsor, Grog Tag. Okay. One thing I want to ask you, Scott, is uh, you went and got a beer. What is that? Yeah, man. This is uh, Forces Unseen from uh, you. Oh, 2016 and, uh, version? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm guessing, yeah. This yes. is, uh, it's it's fresh, and it has no head, no head retention whatsoever, but it tastes nice and carbonated. I would love to know how important you think head retention to be for, like, a commercially available sour beer. Like, are you self-conscious? Not as self-conscious as passing out naked bottles at the holidays, guys. Yeah, that's it's not sad. like that that's level. Yeah, yeah. You know, that level. Sorry. <laughs> Um, But, no, I mean, you know, sour beer has poor head retention. Um, You can build it in there if your beer's not as sour. It's just, like, a little bit tart. Um, You can pasteurize your sour beer. So you'll notice sometimes uh, New Belgium, your sour beers will have some nice head retention to it. But I poured uh, a bottle of uh, Cantillon last night, and... You know, lots of carbonation. It was their uh, dry hop sour, which I can't pronounce, Saint something something. It was terrific. It was from 2015. You know, that's a beer you'd think, you know, tons of raw wheat. It's got uh, a lot of hop charge in there. And I poured it, you know, nice head, lots of carb. And then, you know, it went away. Didn't affect my enjoyment of the beer. I'm only remembering it now because we're talking about it. Yeah, but, and, uh, well, and let me be clear that it's not affecting my beer uh, enjoyment of forces at all either. This is sure. an excellent beer, and not only that, I want to get into why maybe this has um, this is a tamped down uh, acidic backbone from what I've you know we've talked about how rare barrel has sort of been creeping up in that department as a general rule, but this is um, noticeably more subdued while still like super assertive as as is your style. I only wonder how you feel aesthetically because, you know, the public sees it. It doesn't bother me. 
I think beer in, you know, nice photos, if you're, you know, flipping through, let's say, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, for example, <laughs> which I'm plugging because they said something nice about us, and that's my long, I'm, that's what I'm building towards. <laughs> but, you know, you're going to see pretty much all beers with nice head retention and right. all that stuff. So yeah. there seems to be something about that. But when, I, when it comes down to it, it doesn't doesn't bother me really too much. And it also didn't bother craft beer and brewing because their editors named this beer one of the top 16 beers of 2016. Just found that nice. out a few hours ago. So I wrote that on my uh, mentions list here. From the readers of craft beer and brewing, the Rare Barrel was also named one of the uh, favorite sour and wild brewers. So awesome. We think... Uh, the editors for the mention of Forces Unseen and the, the readers for giving us a little shout out there, too. That's so, great, man. Thank Kudos. You guys. Let's see. Well, Question? Well, yeah. Well, I, I do want to get to the... Oh, you the, want to talk about a, acid level. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, obviously, it was deliberate that you made this blend with a, a little bit less acidity. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, yeah, just let, let me hear your, your thought process. Yeah, I mean, on the show before, we've talked about this idea of the pendulum. In our uh, kind of cellar balance, swinging back and forth, we try new experiments all the time. And although I think this is a challenge for probably most sour beer brewers, you know, for us doing so many new things all the time, you get sort of unpredicted results uh, as much as we try to tr- control it. Um, so the challenge does come in blending, and we, we have found ourselves over the last 6 to 12 months having more uh, sour stock to to blend with, so I think there there's certainly some drift there, and a lot of the beers that have come out at the same time as this beer, Wise Guys, uh, Shadows of Their Eyes, some of our club beers like Map of the Moon and Gifted Branch, um, I think are all very reasonable acid levels, and it just represents the beer that we brewed in order to balance out our cellar. So we're always kind of constantly playing with how to manipulate our beers to to get into balance but i'd say this represents not even just where our cellar was at this time but kind of the direction we're going with it too because we're you know our bacteria over time are getting so much stronger i think we touched on this in the last couple of shows we need to use less we don't need to introduce it as often we don't need to create conditions in either wort or beer that favor the bacteria as much as we used to um i think at the beginning of a lot of sour programs you have a lot of trouble encouraging these uh bacteria and you know actually that's honestly mirrored in the advice of this show which some and i worry about sometimes where you know so much is in development with not only sour beer but what we're doing at the Rare Barrel, and frankly, even my knowledge, you know, I think the things I'll say in this show are going to be smarter than the things I said in the first show because of all the guests we've gotten to talk to and just my experience at the Rare Barrel and the great staff that I have helping, you know, us all learn about this stuff. So I think things will change over time. But a lot of the advice, if I go back and listen to an earlier podcast, um, people ask, you know, oh, I did this and it didn't turn sour, or I did this and I left it for two years and now it's acetic. And a lot of that is geared into creating these juggernaut bacteria cultures and making sure that that's how you can start. And then once you have the you know gift of acidity in your cellar, you can just really tamp that down and not really use as much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's hard to get, but once you get it, you can have a lot of it very quickly. So I think even even though we kind of knew that was coming a little bit, and that probably happens for a lot of sour beer producers, and you know, some of my staff even mentioned to me the other day that you know we get to try a lot of different breweries, sour beers at the brewery, and uh, they kind of noticed that as a trend overall with uh, – newer, younger sour beer producers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where we fit right into that. And uh, we started to design beers to kind of trace or track back the uh, the direction of the brewery into a more moderate acid level. Um, but, of course, it's always challenging. And, you know, now, now a, a big conversation we have quite a bit is, are the things we're doing now going to, swing the pendulum too far the other direction mm-hmm. so I, I don't uh particularly see that coming because i just think our bacteria are so strong now we'll have to we'll be able to use a lot less to impact the beers a lot more but the beers we're making now i said at the beginning and i didn't know how true it would be but i thought it would be true is that the beers we're making today won't be 
anything like the beers we're making in two years and two years after that and 10 years after that. So, you know, I think what you said about this year is, or this beer here in front of you, the forces unseen is, you know, it had tamped down acidity, but still assertive oh, like, yeah. like your beers are. But I don't necessarily think that that's, I may be very particular about this, but to me, our beers aren't like anything. They're just like what we had at the time and they kind of reflect what we were working on then and our new beers are always going to be different and the results of us trying to say what do we like about this beer we made in the past what do we think we could improve so i think it's always in development and i'm really excited about the direction we're going with our beer these days and i think your comment about this forces unseen batch is representative of that momentum but you ain't seen nothing yet. I don't know. I'm excited to see what, where it goes. Yeah, and I, let me just put a, a finer point on it. I don't think I chose my words very well. I'm offended. It's, <laughs> it's not that it's like a you know derivative or it's it's like whatever. It, it really, I agree 100. percent It is its own thing. It's got a new character all its own, and it doesn't taste like previous forces, and it doesn't taste like year one. Mm-hmm. Or, it just it, it's its own thing, it's, sure. and it tastes like that's what you guys are doing in the press. I only said that just to sort of. Make sure that the audience understands that this is not – it's still got an acidic backbone. Sure. It's still assertive, and that's just – that's what you've been doing even from the beginning. Like, you, you guys came out of the gate mm-hmm. with a good acid backbone. And, and then – so let me, let me see I think I, you'd be surprised. I think if, you, if I brought in some of our yeah, first releases, yeah. you'd be surprised how uh, mildly tart those are. I'm sure you're right. And you've I taste acclimated the, my palate. Yeah. And I, I've tasted those in – I really like that acid level as well, and I think we're probably trending back to that territory. But I even think, you know, we didn't make those as like our, and I'll do air quotes over our podcast, air quotes, floor of the acidity. That's not like our minimum acid level. And to taste them today and realize that that's not what we were thinking, we thought that that would kind of be our average. It's like, oh, wow, this is like quite different, and there's a lot of way to go the other way. I don't think we quite touched any beer or blend that I thought was, you know, so acidic as to be, like, unpleasant or, like, bold for the sake of being bold, you know, like, knock your socks off sour, shock value sour. And I've been been happy about that. But it just shows, like, we always wanted to be all over that range. And now that I think we sort of have, I think there's more to do on the the lightly tart side of things. It's a big, big range. And then you just start to think about, what uh, amount of acid pairs with all the beers we make? You know, what home sour home, what level acid sh- should that be? Apropos of nothing, you know, shadows of their eyes or in source old, what should that be? And we can just plan that all from the beginning and look at all of our fermentation data and do our adjustments. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's always more fun and more stuff to do. But uh, sometimes for us, the bottled beers that everyone gets to try are almost like, oh, yeah, we... That's like a snapshot in time. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. But for us, a lot of the stuff we focus on is the process and what we have in barrels now and all that kind of fun stuff. So it's, it's fun to hear feedback on the, the finished product. How, yeah, kudos. I mean, it's, it's tasting awesome, as always. How much of the year one stuff do you have? Yeah, yeah. We keep a certain amount of, uh, of bottles from, from each beer we bottle. Uh, the... 2000 and we, we bottled a few beers in 2013 mm-hmm. and then a full year's worth in uh, 2014 so the early ones there are very low no very very low it, stock it would be really interesting to taste one to go back and, and see you're trying to get the, you're trying to get these beers damn right i'm only going to bring one so there's no <laughs> ebay <laughs> uh no but i mean just to see like to because i'm sure you're right yeah. that i'm gonna go back and be like wow like when i first had beers from you then i remember being like this is killer sour beer and it's really a tart you know a, a sur- assertive acidity and if you're right if i went back now i'm sure I'd be like, wow, this is much less than I remember. Let's test it. Yeah. And I, I, that, I think we should absolutely do that. And just thinking about this now and thinking about, you know, seeing our beer on a tap list for, you know, around other sour beers and genuinely tasting a lot of those and saying, I still feel like we're somewhere in the middle of this spectrum of what's on tap. You know, it just reminds me of the, uh, the IPA, IBU war. Right. And people always kind of thought, this would happen in sour beer if if it hadn't happened already. But now with so many new people getting into sour beer, it's probably that first time was like just on too small of a scale to really make a blip. And now it's going to happen all over again. 
whether people like it or not, like I was saying, their house cultures are going to get a lot stronger and they're going to have to find a way to kind of tamp that down with hot side adjustments or favoring the yeast over the bacteria or blending, whatever it might be. So I think it's going to flow that way, but hopefully we can kind of rein it back in. And you hear over and over again from our guests, just, you know, I like a light acidity. You know, I don't want it. Maybe that's some people's problem with the term sour beer Mm -hmm. because people are interpreting that as like really assertively sour. To me, it's any beer with an acid component that comes from bacteria, whether it's tart or ripping sour. But I think a lot of people want their sour beers to be described more as tart, even if the category isn't described that way, if that makes sense. so Totally. So this has turned into the uh, Scott and Jay question and answer show, yeah, I but know, uh, let's let's try to get to some, more, uh, to some more listener questions. Yeah, we definitely should. Okay, how about a question from Chris Dennehy, and uh, again, we're in the Wayback Machine here, so forgive me for the delay, Chris, but he says, hello, first, I would like to say your show is awesome. Found it a week ago, and I'm uh, catching up slowly but surely, so hopefully Chris is current now. He says, I have five gallons of Blondale split into two batches, one with apricots and one with sour cherries. I did a primary with Y-Yeast 1056, then added Y-Yeast Rosalaire. It is my first sour batch, and I am concerned about bottle carbing. Don't want bottle bombs. Could you please give me an idea how to go about bottling it? It's been sitting for over a year, and I'd hate to ruin it. Yeah, sure. This is something we touch on probably one every two shows, yep. kind of tackle a bottle conditioning question, but it's that important. So, yep, exactly. um, you know, you're asking a little while ago, so hopefully you picked up uh, some of the nuts and bolts, but maybe someone who's, you know, listening to this right now and they're in your shoes, let's just say kind of some of the big overviews are you'll want to... Uh, make sure you have a sour beer that's got complete fermentation. Now, what does that mean? It can mean anywhere as extreme as sort of what we do at the Rare Barrel, which is to get, you know, a month to two months of no movement in degrees Play-Doh to the sensitivity of 0.1. Now, what does that mean if you're, you know, a homebrewer is just really starting this out and you're looking at your hydrometer? So if you take your hydrometer, and I believe the rough calculation is dividing it, the specific gravity points by four, uh, you'll get roughly what degree Plato's are. So let's say your beer is at 1.004. Typical finishing gravity for a lot of sour beers. So that's 1.0 Plato. And what we're doing at the Rare Barrel is looking for one to two months of Point one, no, no deviation of point one Play-Doh. So really intense scrutiny on that uh, stability of gravity. Now, you're not going to do that as a humber. So what you really want to do is just still make sure fermentation is done. Likely, if you haven't added any secondary ingredients. Oh, no, you did add secondary ingredients to that beer. So you had cherries and apricots. Some people go through a six-week refermentation on that before bottling. Some people do, you know, three, maybe even four months, depending on the time of year, like we just talked about at the top of the show. So these are some of the rough parameters you want to look at. Then you want to think about how am I going to package the beer? Am I going to force carb this thing? That's going to allow a lot of the active yeast and bacteria to just continue doing their thing, depending on how much sugar is left. Am I going to referment with a new Britannomyces, you got to factor in, is this going to further attenuate and get down? What kind of volumes am I shooting for? You know, typical beer, 2.5. Sour beer can go up 3, 3.5, no problem. Get into how strong are my bottles, get some strong bottles. We mm-hmm. just tackled that. I guess that's going to be two shows ago yeah, on the Brandon. first Brandon show that's yep. been posted already. We also answered the question there about uh, residual CO2 uh, in aged beers instead of a fresh beer out of your fermenter and how online calculators are basically built to before you know your ipa your brown ale even your imperial stout if you're not aging it for a long time and those are all calculating a obviously primary fermentation creates a certain amount of co2 some of that is left over even when that primary fermentation is done dissolved in the beer and so they've calculated that to be on average about 0.8 volumes of CO2. Uh, but in sour beer, it's probably going to be less. So <laughs> there's so many issues. I'll just try, <laughs> try my best here. Let's, let me frame it like this. So that I touched on a lot of ways where overcarbonation can come into play. Mm-hmm. Some ways where undercarbonation can come into play are the ones that, that I just said, where you 
overcalculate how much residual CO2 you already have in the beer when you start. Also, problems can come into play when you bottle condition in too acidic of an environment, too alcoholic of an environment. Uh, if you're worried about that, you can go back and listen to Dr. Matt Bachman on our uh, previous show about terminal acidic shock. You can listen to uh, Chase Healy, that show where he came on talking about his project, American Solera. We started to do that with a few bottling runs at the Rare Barrel. We're still waiting to report back on that. Hopefully, that's not wood, but... Uh, <laughs> it is wood. Is it wood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got this, like, uh, office good furniture veneer on it, but it's definitely wood. It is office good furniture. I would agree. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're hoping those uh, carve up well and uh, you know, limit some of the off flavors and the length of time of bottle conditioning. Temperature of bottle conditioning. A lot of people have warm rooms. Uh, a lot of Belgian breweries do this where they, you know, store the bottles warm for a little while. So that's that's ways you can combat undercarbonation. Uh, warm meaning, like, are we talking like 85 Fahrenheit? Is that too warm? That's probably a little too warm, 70 to 80, okay. I'd say, Fahrenheit. Okay. So just slightly less than that. So a little warmer than room temperature, basically. Wasn't it, uh, was it Dre Fontaine that had the uh, uh, overheated room and lost so many, many bottles? They did, yeah. Oof. Their uh, temperature control uh, basically didn't shut off or wasn't sensing correctly, so the heater just kept running. Right. And uh, like most 90. of their bottles were, were exploded and uh, were destroyed. That's right. Um, that really hurt them. And then, uh, yeah, that was bad times. You can go back and listen to, man... I think, did Pete talk about this? Was, has Pete Slosberg been on the session a long time yeah, ago? Yeah, it's been a long time. Maybe he didn't talk about it then. I do remember it coming up, but I don't remember where. Google a story about Pete Slosberg, uh, formerly of Pete's Wicked Ales, a good friend of ours at the Rare Barrel. We made a collaboration beer with here with him uh, in our On the Shoulders of Giants series. And, uh, yeah, he helped them out. They made a little blend, and that started a lot of great beers coming mm-hmm. out of uh, Dre Fontaine. And, and they're doing great now. For sure. And uh, just quickly, the... On the Shoulders of Giants series, has another one besides his come out? No. Okay. Good. I want to make I'm sure I get this th- one. I'm trying to think if I... I'm not sure if I have already mentioned. There is going to be a second one. Did I mention... Let's just tease it out. Let's all say right, I didn't. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's kind of an overview. A lot of good articles on Sour Beer uh, Ball Conditioning out there, too, to, to check out online for reference and anything that I missed. That's a lot. Because that's a lot to... Uh, that's a big subject. It's kind of like... We get asked about barrel maintenance sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, I just got this barrel. What should I do? Kind of right, thing. Totally. And I've, I don't know, I've probably gone on two or three like <laughs> five-minute rants on different episodes on, on that subject. So, uh, Which is totally fine. Like, as you sure. mentioned at the top of the question, repetition is good. It's helpful. It helps people. Re- repetition re- is good. It's helpful. It yes, helps it, people. It's very helpful. It helps people maintain. Yeah, and repetition, re- that is. <laughs> retain information and uh chris uh thank you for writing and you know i mean this as i mentioned this uh, from the uh, Wayback machine so i'm guessing chris you already bottled that beer and as we mm-hmm. mentioned on previous shows you know we would love to hear follow-up emails from you guys about how some of these things you wrote in about did you do it how did it go did you modify it did you take our advice did you not etc so uh, we we welcome uh a follow-up uh, I have a question for you, Scott. Yeah. Are, is this still the second segment? Of yeah. This, uh, yeah. We're, we're low. So we'll, let's, uh, we'll just do one last question when we come back as of the final. Let's do that. Uh, and take a break. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Planning my moves. It's the Sour <laughs> Hour on the Brewing Network. Get me. My 
motherfucker. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. I know that motherfucker Santa bring a pick for my app, bro. And here's the rest of my Christmas list. I want a black motherfucking Lexus. And for my homies down the way, I say bring a gang of tankers. Yeah, bring that shit for Dr. Dre. Me and my niggas down in LBC. We'll smoke that motherfucking Christmas tree. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, cause this bitch be tight. Light, Saint Nick, pick some kind of cross the grape, but don't pack a sack for my nigga to pack. That's what. Sour Hour, doing one-part question, three-part answer <laughs> show. Good. With uh, some beer, perhaps, at some point, maybe? Maybe. Maybe we'll just drink beer? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, we you do know, that. it's inappropriate, but... That's uh... yeah, fine. Speaking of inappropriate, Oregon Fruit Products. <laughs> no, that didn't work. <laughs> totally appropriate. Uh, company to work with, our great sponsor. Uh, their aseptic purees are easy to use, convenient to store. They have no additives or artificial flavors. It's simply great expression of the raw fruit. They love working with brewers to help us innovate. You can check them out at fruitforbrewing.com. Oregon Fruit, they bring fruit to La Haim. Yeah. Uh, well, that's redundant. To, they bring that's fruit to, to La Haim. Yeah, it's like when people say ATM machine. The automatic teller machine machine. Or but saying two Lachaim is two to life. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the worst one. I don't of all even time. know what the word is for that. Uh, terrible. Uh, another great sponsor, Wine and Hop Shop, wineandhop.com. They're carrying, carrying uh, Omega yeast and Giga yeast. Most items are going to ship within 24 hours. And best of all, BN listeners get a flat $8 shipping. Let's bring that, bring that back. <laughs> Why is it this one? This this read is always too too hard for me. <laughs> Most items are going to ship within 24 hours, and best of all, Scott, BN listeners get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 50 pounds. Just enter BN shipping in the notes field of the shopping cart, and the discount will be taken off after checkout. The Wine and Hop Shop, wineandhop.com. Wait, what? <laughs> wineandhop.com. Okay, let's do one final one here before we do our show break. This is a... Uh, Man, I don't know if it's like a sort of statement, but I, I mean, I think it's sort of advice for you. It's from a pro brewer who specifically asked not to be named or where, where he works. Oh. I'll show you off the, off the air here. But he, um, then so, I'll tweet it out to you guys. Follow me perfect. at J Goose. 
No, I don't have a Twitter. You don't? <laughs> no. Oh, Jay Goose. That's good. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. So so you can sort of see what your reaction is to it. Maybe it'll just be like mind-blowing for you, or maybe you'll be like, no, that won't work for this reason. But anyway, he says, okay. Jay, I wanted to give you a tip on a cheap solution to calculating priming sugar additions for barrel-aged sours. Oh, Sorry, okay. for barrel-aged beers. Oh, great. Uh, the device is called the Carbo de Sure. And is frequently used in the wine industry to dial in a low PPM of CO2, typically for aromatic whites. It is a 100-milliliter graduated cylinder with a screw cap, gasket, and hollow tube protruding out of the top, which extends into the bottom of the cylinder. Does this sound familiar at all? Uh, No. Okay. The procedure is easy. You get a sample. You take its temperature, and you fill it to the 100-milliliter mark. You then screw on the top and shake it with your thumb covering the hole on the top and release pressure pure. Periodically, waiting for the flow to subside out of the top once you let your thumb off of it. Once no more flow is coming out after shaking it a few times, he says typically about like one minute, you take a reading of how much the sample has been displaced. I'm sorry, of how much sample has been displaced. Say 8 milliliters, so 92 milliliters left in the cylinder. The PPM of CO2 in solution of the sample is proportional to the temperature and the amount of volume displaced and can be looked up on a matrix provided by the manufacturer or an intelligent chemistry student. You can then convert PPM of CO2 to volumes of CO2, if you like, and calculate your priming sugar from there. He says, I'm somewhat baffled that no one, to his knowledge, is using, or her knowledge, is using this device in the beer industry, being that it is a procedure that has been used in the wine industry for many years. Uh, I've been trying to get my brewery to buy one since we have inconsistent carbonation on our bottled wild ales, but they still have not bought one, and then ARG. Uh, they are really, uh, Jesus, they're really cheap, like 150 bucks, 200 bucks, and uh, here he, brings, he gives you a link. So here. He or she. Know, he or she uh, gives you a link. So here. Okay. Yeah, I could, I could buy into this. That's great. Yeah, I, got I, I think that makes sense. There, by, just, by the way, there's so many jokes I could have made when you're describing that process, but I just let <laughs> all of them go. <laughs> you put your thumb in, and then, yeah. So what do you think? Does I it think, make sense as described? Yes. Uh, I have not made anyone ever, and uh, I'm not that familiar with, you know, wine-making QA, QC practices, but that sounds like that totally makes sense. And I've been thinking lately, I've been drinking some white wines, and they had, like, really noticeable... CO2 levels in them. To me, yeah, I mean, it's low, but it's like, man, this is like... Almost a little bubbly? This is distracting. Like, Interesting. It's almost like a weak, like a really, really weak champagne. Whites um, or reds? Whites, yeah. So that's that's interesting, because I think it would be hard to, to dial that in at such a low volume. I always thought it was kind of like a mistake or just something that they don't really care about or pay attention to, but to, to find out that they pay a lot of attention to it is, is kind of cool. But yeah, I totally think that could work. So fantastic advice, anonymous. Yeah. Uh, so, and if for anybody that is interested in what I just described and you wish to look it up, it's the Carbo Ducier one more time. C-A-R-B-O-D-O-S-E-U-R. Wineandhop.com carry that? I have no idea. Definitely check our sponsors and see if they carry something If like they that. don't, I'm sure they could get it too, you know? Absolutely. So call yes. them up, tell them who sent you, and uh, yeah, wineandhop.com. And what was that? Carbo? Carbo Ducier. It must be French. That's That's a cool name. Yeah. I wish that was my name. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time to start a Twitter. Yeah. Car- At Carbo Car- Desure. Desure. Good one. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really cool, easy, and super science-y. And you know what else does, Scott? What? It's time to party because I'm bringing the iDip. Oh, oh, yeah. I just made that up. Boom. But you're, <laughs> I'm like, I don't even, you, you leave me speechless, man. Uh, the iDip, it's for home or commercial use. It's a water testing kit, which incorporates a revolutionary photometer and photometer, because I haven't decided which one it's <laughs> pronounced as. So two for one, which is the first and only on the market with its own app. The iDip can perform over 40 different water quality tests for things like chloride, calcium hardness, pH, sulfate, and much more. And 36 more, precisely. Podcast listeners, that's you, should enter a code tbn10 that's tbn10 at checkout and save ten dollars on either the standard or advanced version of the smart brew testing kit order now and make this futuristic technology part of your brewing process visit www.smartbrewkit.com still the insistence on the www not mine the (laughs) i 
I read, I read as given. No, I don't mean you. I just mean in general. <laughs> Actually, that's not true at all. I don't read as given. No, you totally don't. <laughs> but but that's that's where you have to go. And if I, you know, I won't be held accountable if people visit smartbrewkit.com and get denied instead of brewing visiting www.smartbrewkit.com. So, Scott, you can visit smartbrewkit.com, but I'm going to visit www.smartbrewkit.com, and I hope all the listeners visit. All right, I'll stop. (laughs) I'll see all you smart people at smartbrewkit.com. Yes. W, 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 W. Okay. Are we good? Uh, I think so. Yeah, all right. Let's do it. Show break time. Yes, sir. We're going to come back in a little bit with some more questions and even more answering Thank you to you, Scott. You're welcome. Oh, I think there's another uh, flavor on out there. More rare barrel beer on tap coming up. Oh, good. I don't know where you're talking about. Thanks to (laughs) Bevo, who was here for a second before the show. Screw you, Bev. But she left. Per usual. I love you, Bev. Thanks to Kevin in the back studio as well. Until next time. Thumbs up. Stay sour. Stay sour.